Today on Immigration Uncovered, the DocketWise video podcast, we have Andrew Craybaum, immigration law reporter for Bloomberg Law. To start, could you briefly describe sort of your journey as a journalist and how you became interested in reporting on immigration policy? Sure. So um, I, I've been reporting on legal in immigration programs, uh, especially with an employment or, or, or workplace connection for, for Bloomberg Law for uh, about two years now. But I've, I've been working as a reporter for more than a decade. Actually started just after graduating college down in, in South Texas at the uh, Laredo Morning Times and worked uh, worked a few years in Laredo, the Rio Grande Valley, El Paso, and not, not covering immigration per se, but you do definitely get a, a certain appreciation of the border and and how Im- immigration is, is sort of a constant issue there. I covered K-12 schools when I was in El Paso, and maybe the, the, the biggest story was a, a school cheating scandal. It involved mi- migrant youth that school administrators basically tried to push out of the school system to improve test results, uh, test scores for uh for schools. And and so even when you're not covering immigration, you're covering education or or health or or, or whatever, it, it, immigration can kind of be this this issue in the in the background. After that, I, I, I actually covered higher education and and a bit of K-12 policy in DC uh, for several years for uh, Inside Higher Ed and and Bloomberg. This role opened up yeah, a couple of years ago, and it's been an area of interest for a long time. I, I I think partly because immigration says so much about, I guess, our our current politics and and the legal system, so, sort of who we are as a society. I, I I think a lot of times there can be this sense that something big happens, whether it's policies pushed by the Trump administration or um, you know what's happening on on the border more recently. And what you'll hear, the impression you can get, especially from a lot of politicians, you know, people in the media too, is is that this is brand new. This is the first time that, that this thing has, has happened. But I think, uh, you know, a lot of these big controversies that they, they've, they've been in an ongoing story, uh, an ongoing issue for leaders in, in D.C. and elsewhere to, to grapple with for a long time. So I really try to, you know, add add that context and, and, and that background for um, for our, our audience, our readers. You know, when you're living in South Texas, immigration is really never far from, uh, you know, one's mind. I mean, uh, I also... Um, Starting out in immigration, uh, it's interesting. Both we both uh, sort of uh, started out getting introduced in Texas, and uh, with mine, it was volunteering for the. Uh, it was a program called Pro Bar, which was the Texas Bar Association. But my point, and shout out to Pro Bar, anyone who ever wants to volunteer, it's an excellent program to provide uh, pro bono representation on the border. My point being, when you're in Texas, especially South Texas, immigration can never be far from one's mind. But Andrew, um, so you've you've knitted together sort of your experience with education policy or edu- uh, with labor policy and so forth, and then uh, your latest sort of focus is immigration. Let's talk about some of the challenges in uh, reporting on immigration policy. So, uh, you know, sort of what strategies do you use to present a balanced perspective, and what are some of the challenges? associated with reporting on a complex topic like immigration, where it's very polarized. 
Yeah, yeah, it is a very polarized issue, and and I I think a lot of times it's an issue where there there can be more more heat than than light in a lot of the the coverage, a lot of the discussions. So I, I I think you know that's that's one place you want to start by whatever issue you're covering is just getting uh, past sort of the the talking points and 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 trying to lay out like okay what are the what are the facts here? What are the what what are the real issues? What 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 are the real policy challenges? You know whether it's DACA or work authorization for more recent migrants, whether it's uh, green card backlogs, and 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 just give people information they they can use. Basically, as far as the the challenges, I I think one one thing I've experienced is that when it comes to federal agencies like. Um, USCIS. Some agencies are more open. They do more public-facing events than others. I won't say USCIS is one of the agencies that's doing a lot of press conferences to pick the brains of, of officials there. So just getting perspective of people dealing with these issues up close every every day, every week can, can be a challenge. Sometimes all, all we can do is, you know, refer to the Further briefs, filing courts, look at what officials have, have told uh, lawmakers in, in public hearings, et cetera. And a lot, a lot of times that challenge is because you're writing about litigation where a government agency isn't able to respond. And, and, and so you can have a plaintiff's attorney on, on the other side sort of framing the story to some extent. And, it, and it's, I guess it's our responsibility to kind of fill in, fill in the details, fill in that context of why, why may the, um, the agency or, you know, whatever official involved here be, be taking that approach. Well, how do you understand, a, you know, a journalist's obligation to, you know, be ba- balanced? I mean, if, unless you're doing, you know, advocacy journalism, but if you're doing sort of mainstream journalism where you're, you're supposed to sort of, um, I mean, let me let you answer what, do, how do you understand a, an obligation, if any, to be balanced in your career? I think this goes to the issue of um, of, of trustworthiness um, to some extent. Like people want to read our stories and our coverage. I, I hope because they consider us trustworthy, presenting all the facts and the context they need. If your coverage is slanted to one side or the other, I, I, I think that can damage your your credibility with readers. It can damage your credibility with uh, potential sources on either side. When you talk about balance, I, I mean, I, I think it's to some extent that's about covering all sides or, or as many sides of a of an issue as, as possible, whether it's a, a lawsuit, policy issue, something else. Um, it, it, it's also a, a matter of you want to make sure everyone feels like they were heard or their uh, perspective is, is represented accurately as well. How do you view the role of journalists in shaping the public perception and the policy discussions related to immigration? To, to some extent, we are like reacting and 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 covering the events that are unfolding. So whatever whatever you think the story um, may be that month, you know the breaking news, what what whatever uh, breaking news in the courts, some new policy, the uh, the White House decides to unveil, you know, it, it can always surprise you. A, a, a war can break out. And, and then there's immigration issues that unfold from there. 
we do frame a lot of the issues um, in the sense that we decide to some extent what what issues really matter, what what are, what are the priorities in terms of news coverage, who do we quote, whose whose views do we represent. So I, I I think that we have to be aware of the way that that we shape, I guess, our our coverage and 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 the stories and the uh, and the perspectives that readers are are getting. Understood. Let's talk about what what would be, in your view, some of the most pressing immigration policy issues uh, facing the U.S. Uh, that you may have reported on. It's been a little surprising to some extent the way that I found that those those issues just haven't really changed for years and years uh, on the beat. There's a lot of developing stories like we can talk about um, DACA, for instance, you know, facing continuous legal threats. And we don't know what the uh, the long term status of, you know, that program is is going to be. When it comes to broader immigration in the U.S., we've had essentially for, for decades, the quotas for green cards or temporary visas have remained flat. And so, you talk to people who worked in the immigration policy world for a while, and and you just get the sense that they they've been having these same conversations for years and years. And I I think what a lot of folks who who work in the space would call a um, dysfunctional or or antiquated system that that hasn't really been updated for you know 20, 30 years at, at this point. We're we're going to get to a point in the in the future where we're not going to have the workers we need possibly, whether it's workers for seasonal industries or folks with more specialized skills. You know, what what you will hear from advocacy organizations, immigration experts is if Congress doesn't take action, raise the caps for new immigrants, you know, we're, we're going to have a major problem. We've, we've already got a, a nursing shortage um, in the U.S. That's that's only going to get worse. And it, it looks like really the only um, only solution we've got right now is is potentially bringing in um, nurses from abroad. But the immigration system doesn't really allow for that. So so that's I, I think maybe the biggest one is is just at what point do do policymakers sort of grapple with the connection between the immigration system and the labor needs of aging population in the U.S.? The other issue, obviously, with with DACA, it's sort of this this stand-in for the fact that there hasn't been any effort by Congress, or or, or Congress hasn't been able to to pass any measure that that deals with a pretty significant unauthorized population in this country. So e- even if DACA sticks around at this point be- because of the limitations, the original limitations that on that program, who was eligible, who wasn't, the, the reality is most undocumented kids graduating from high school today, that option was not going to be accessible to them. So, you know, when, when, when do policymakers deal, deal seriously with opportunities uh, for those folks to to stay here to to work legally and use the the skills and the education they get here. Those are two very uh, broad ones, but I, I I think when you look in the into the the nitty gritty right now, DOL DHS they're they're sort of um, churning out new regulations on on temporary visa programs, H two A H two B workers um later this fall the the h1b 
specialty occupation program. A lot of the the DOL rules under the Biden administration are already being challenged in in the courts. So to, to the extent they're trying to update or, or overhaul those programs, those efforts look like they're going to be contested uh, pretty pretty thoroughly by um, a lot of a lot of industry groups and and other other organizations. Let's talk a little bit about a few of your a few of your articles. I mean, you wrote an article how H-1B visas work and why they're back in the headlines. And uh, certainly a lot of our listeners are immigration lawyers who handle H-1B visas. So could you explain uh, in your understanding the significance of the H-1B visa program and why it frequently makes headlines? It made headlines outside of you know the immigration world recently because of uh, one of the Republican presidential contenders, Vivekka Ramaswamy, uh, made, made some comments that, you know, as, as president, um, he would basically, I don't, I don't recall the, uh, the exact quote, but, but, but essentially, uh, do, do away with the program as, as we know it. When he dug into his, his statements a little more, he was essentially, I gather, talking about making allocation or selection of those visas based on merit or or earnings potential earnings um versus just a a lottery which is how they're they're awarded now so yeah i guess to take a step back this program it's how a lot of the really i, I guess high high school it's it's thought of as as being uh used for for high, high school workers um it's really the the best option and want to want to stay in the u.s after uh getting a degree at a, a college or university and it's especially big in the uh, in the tech industry, and, and I, I think the controversy is basically about whether these large tech employers, in particular, and the companies that that contract with the um, you know Silicon Valley giants, Google, Amazon, et cetera, that are themselves big H one B users. The claim has been that they're using these visas to sort of undercut U S workers or or pay folks um, even less. In, employers do have to basically test that th- they're they're going to pay H-1B workers the the same as you know any any American worker in that field. These folks you know have to have at least a, a bachelor's degree, uh, twenty twenty thousand of the uh, eighty five thousand H-1Bs each year. New H-1Bs are are reserved for folks with master's degrees, at least, and you know a lot of Employers, industry groups will say that, you know, the, the problem is we don't have enough H-1Bs to to meet the need in the U.S. for folks with certain certain tech skills, um, engineering, uh, folk, folks working in the sciences, et cetera. I think, you know, r- rather than do we continue to have this program or not, I, I, I think the debate will probably continue to be about how do we allocate these visas to make sure we're getting the workers we really need here with the skills we really need and how do we structure the allocation you know whether that this lottery or something else in the most fair way possible well i wanted to ask you a question about best practices when dealing with the media i mean sometimes attorneys uh you know want to communicate something to the media or it, the immigrants may also Want to contact, a person who's an immigrant may want to contact the media uh, because their story is newsworthy. So can you offer your thoughts on how 
attorneys or immigrants could most effectively communicate about issues with reporters or other people in the media? What would be some best practices? Sure. I'll say from, you know, wherever you sit as reporters, we like to be able to break news, obviously, but cover it as it happens, even before it happens, if if, if we can get a get an idea that a, a, a significant lawsuit, um, for example, is is being filed, something like that, versus, you know, later that day or or, or later that week. But I, I think for attorneys, you know, being able to, you know, just share with us, like, we're filing this case, here's here's why it matters, here's the uh, the complaint, or at least a, a draft of a complaint that, that allows us to sort of go, okay, I can, I have, you know, more than 30 minutes at least to read through this process it try to figure out why why it matters why it's significant what's what's the important context here um what's what's the program that's being implicated if it's h1b or um or something else you you mentioned immigrants as well um you know i will say like one of one of the real challenges uh covering immigration versus you know I, i covered um uh, higher ed for um, many years. A lot of immigrants, more folks on temporary visas, hoping to become uh, permanent residents here, can be somewhat hesitant to talk on the record with reporters for understandable reasons. To the extent people are willing to to really share their stories, especially for these weedy policy or or legal issues if if we can put a a human face on on that story or multiple faces i think that always helps us to unpack to readers like hey this this is really why this matters because it has this this human impact on someone like you that's that's in your community that could be doing important work in in your community well, let's talk about that. I mean, could you share some examples of human stories or experiences related to immigration policy that have left a lasting impact on you as a journalist? Yeah, I mean, the the, the one that uh, immediately comes to mind is covering this continual um, fallout from the uh, the court challenges to DACA. And when you check in with current DACA recipients, people who have uh, protections through um, through that program, you just get this real sense of just being in limbo and waiting for some judge or some court years or, or, you know, maybe months, months now deciding their future and their, their opportunities in the U S you also see a lot of issues develop for, for folks who have come through, I guess the, the legal immigration system, this, uh, group of young people in the, in the U S though still pretty, pretty young at this point called, called documented dreamers who were the um, dependents of immigrants who came on H-1Bs, maybe, from really back to like countries like like India. Their parents, a person who had the, the underlying visa, is waiting so long for permanent residency, uh, d- decades, um, in a lot of cases, that they can age out. They hit age of 21 if, if, if they're not able to figure out some other option to secure a visa and stay in the U.S. that they're, they're looking at being forced to basically leave and in many cases go back to a country they haven't lived in for many years. They really have no experience of outside of early years that they, they probably don't even remember. So that frustration, I think, is is really helpful from, from folks who they would say that they've done everything right and, and they're sort of suffering just because 
the system doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And how do you verify and fact check information when you're doing a story on immigration? It's it's basically using all of the sources that are available to you. It can be as basic as just checking on a LinkedIn or, or company website that uh, you've got the correct uh, title and, and, and spelling of um, someone's name that they're quoting. But I think at a, at a lot of the in the courts, like, you know, it, anyone can, can file a lawsuit make, making a claim about a program. And when, when it comes to covering the facts of a case and, and, and not just, you know, the, the analysis or, or the legal arguments, sometimes you have to do a lot of legwork in confirming that that's correct. You know, I talked earlier about a lot of the discourse on, on immigration, oftentimes having more heat than light. And I guess you, you, you see that in a lot of statements from, from policymakers who are maybe not, not well-informed about how a program like um, H-1B visas works. So you spend enough time on, on the beat and you educate yourself about all of the, the various requirements with these systems. And you can identify when, when people just, just had it wrong because they're not informed. So, Andrew, are there any other media outlets or publications out there that you think are doing particularly good work on reporting on immigration policy? Yeah. Uh, well, well, first of all, I uh, want to give a, a shout out to the coverage of my Bloomberg colleague, uh, Ellen, Ellen Gilmer, who covers DHS for us and spends um, a lot of her time on the Hill. She does, she does really excellent work. Michelle Hackman at the at the Wall Street Journal, I think, is also does a lot of uh, great reporting on you know immigration and and the workplace. CBS News Roll Call, you know, one of one of our uh, competitors on the immigration beat, Suzanne Monac, actually just just came over to uh, report for Bloomberg Law. But there, there's a lot of folks doing uh, great work in this area. Let's talk about. When you're doing a story, Andrew, on immigration, how do you go about researching the topic? And does it often involve collecting and analyzing data? I think just, just about any immigration story, I think, that I've, that I've covered. It's hard to think of one where there hasn't been some prior coverage or, or at least uh, coverage of a, of a similar issue. One that comes to mind is I wrote a story earlier this year about the Biden administration's efforts to partially address labor market issues, partially address immigration issues by expanding the number of H-2B supplemental visas available to, to seasonal industries. You know, I, I did a lot of, a lot of uh, on-the-ground reporting. I actually went out to, uh, to Michigan to visit employers, talk to workers, but before I even got that far, there was a lot of background reading on the supplemental visa cap and um, all of the previous decisions to issue additional visas and the political back and forth involved. And so you always try to start there like, okay, what's what's already been done on this topic, especially on a, on a deeper dive story. As far as the immigration data goes, I, I think that's something that we do want to do more original analysis. But there are a lot of folks in this area who put out a lot of great data, like uh, the track program. Um, I'm, I'm not going to um, remember what the what the acronym stands for off the top of my head. And the Access Clearinghouse. That's yeah, they, they, they put out a lot of great data on the courts. 
And I wrote a story last year about uh, something called mandamus lawsuits. I spent a lot of time just looking at court dockets and looking at the immigration cases that are filed. And it, it, I'd say for most of the past two years, it it, it, it seems like uh, the vast majority of um, immigration cases are, are that wind up in the federal courts are about removal proceedings or there are these mandamus lawsuits where a plaintiff is is basically arguing to the courts like, hey, um, USAIS, in many cases, or whatever agency, they've been sitting on my application to adjust status or whatever kind of petition for months or in some cases years, and they're violating the Administrative Procedure Act. They're not in compliance with the law because they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing as the agency here. And track actually, I noticed that there are all of these cases, and, and then track put out this this data that that showed that actually, yeah, that the number of mandamus cases had had just been shooting up and up and up in in recent years, and that's 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 partly a function of the backlogs in the system. And there's there's so many cases, USCIS, which is a fee funded agency, they don't necessarily have have the resources that they need, especially you know coming out of the pandemic really struggled with a with a huge backlog of cases so for a lot of uh immigrants with you know with the means of hiring attorney and filing a a lawsuit this was one way to get some action by by the agency to have court way in or or the agency might just say we're not going to fight we're going to fight this we're just going to deal with the case and of course it also just highlights how if, if that's the route people are going well the the system is not functioning very well so um we look at sort of how how all these these cases are adding up but also look at you know how how can the data that groups like track are, are producing how, how how can that help us to to tell a story and kind of back up the the trends we're observing well, Andrew, you know, in immigration uh, rights or immigration law and advocacy, there are a lot of sort of activist groups, immigrant rights groups, advocacy groups, et cetera. And they often play a role in shaping the debate. Certainly they sometimes, you know, get media coverage. Have you had occasion to cover the activities of any of these groups? And if so, how do you do it while maintaining a journalistic impartiality? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'd mention a case with the the documented dreamers or, or or the issue involving documented dreamers earlier, and I think that 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 issue has has gotten a lot of attention, you know, both in the national press as well as in local newspapers, um, because uh, documented dreamers have been organizing and advocating for themselves and talking to reporters, ta- talking to uh, folks on the hill. I think same for. Say for DACA, there are a lot of national immigration groups who are working on that issue. They include a lot of uh, a lot of staffers, some folks in in leadership who are who are DACA recipients themselves, who are trying to get the story out of folks who are have this status or experiencing uncertainty. I think that those organizations who are sort of the if you want to call them activists or advocates, they play an important role in you know, highlighting what are the issues sometimes that aren't getting covered. And a lot of times they're able to connect you with folks who have the expertise or, or just have the expertise on 
the experience of being a, an, an immigrant and speaking to that as far as like maintaining balance, you try to speak to uh, folks with various perspectives. And part of the challenge is is just like explaining all of the political or bureaucratic barriers that are facing an immigrant. With documented dreamers, I, I'm sure there's there's someone in Congress maybe. I've heard, you know, Democrats and Republicans saying we should we should really do something about about this issue. And many times it's it's a matter of you do get some recognition from from all sides that there, there's a problem here, but but then the politics, the political challenges in DC are, are such that nothing happens again in this Congress, and then and then advocates hope that it's it's the next one where they can see a win on their issue. And Andrew, how do you measure the impact of your reporting uh, on immigration? In other words, how do you define success? How do you know when a story has been a success in your eyes? Number one, it's 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 hard to predict when a story is going to have the the impact or the success that you hope for. Sometimes a story you you, you think would have, I guess, limited interest just gets hundreds or even thousands of of views and and that's great and 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 maybe that tells you if there was an audience there you didn't realize i certainly look at you know reactions on on social media i use linkedin a lot more than twitter uh these days for that and and to uh connect with potential uh sources we also see you know what are the readership numbers for uh for stories that our team puts out. One thing you you always, I guess, in, enjoy seeing is when uh, you know a, a letter from a member of Congress to an agency or citing your your story or your coverage, saying, "Hey, this this is uh, an issue because it's it's being reported here and what's going on, what's being done about it." You know, you, you do look for for stuff like that, enforcement actions by uh, by agencies. That stuff is like the kind of real world impact that I, I I think most journalists sort of hope for beyond the readership. But it's it's always hard to it's always hard to predict. I I, I guess that's that's why you you look for stories or issues that that matter that have. A real significance to to readers to employers try to show how it's affecting real people and if you can find you know some kind of policy failure that can or should be fixed i, I think that's sort of the formula to to some extent and then you you put that story out there and then you you hope the right people read it and push for action what were the things that andrew that you found most surprising if anything about immigration when you first started reporting on this area? Anything that shocked you or you found really uh, surprising or unexpected? Uh, and were there any immigrants, any subjects of any reportage that you've done who had particularly unexpected profiles or experiences? I'd had a little bit of exposure to illegal immigration programs, having covered a higher ed, reporting on something like optional practical training, for instance. But it, there's a learning curve when when you're covering a beat full time initially, and you know I I, I think the, the picture one thing I really taken away besides just like there's this alphabet 
soup of, of visa types and programs. That's quite the challenge. Um, I, I think even for experts to, to navigate much, much less for general readers, how hard it is to follow all the rules, you know, quote unquote, do, do it the right way, get in line, those kinds of talking points that you hear, like it's almost the odds are incredibly slim for most folks who want to immigrate to the the U.S. legally, because because the options are are so narrow, and we really limit the legal pathways numerically. Bottom line. So I, I, I guess that's that's been my I guess my biggest takeaway is is just what an impossible system the legal immigration programs in the, in the U.S. sort of add up to for most immigrants. And what I when I think about I mentioned focus going through challenges with with DACA or or the you know documented dreamers the bureaucratic challenges that just anyone can encounter are sort of shocking have have interviewed spouses of H1B visa holders for example they've seen their legal work authorization lapse because again backlogs in the system and you know these are highly educated immigrants sometimes mul- multiple degrees and they just find themselves, you know, stuck at home, not not being able to do much of anything while the, they're waiting for this, you know, this piece of paper to be uh, to be renewed by a federal agency. I would think most readers who aren't familiar with the immigration system would find it surprising. You know, we're we're in this. We've been talking about labor shortages, skill shortages uh, coming out of the the pandemic for a while, but we create a whole lot of challenges for folks who want to be here working to do just that, basically. And what advice would you give to either aspiring journalists or others who are interested in covering immigration policy, writing about immigration? I think, number one, just read anything you can you know, you can, and not just about the border and immigration enforcement, but, but other parts of the system as well. And and also to familiarize yourself with the history of the, the U.S. legal immigration system. You know, yeah, I, I guess you need to understand sort of how, how we got here and all the all the trade-offs. Fixing immigration policy in the, the post-civil rights era, what, what else at this point? to a system where I, th- I think most uh, most experts say isn't very functional at this point. As far as like breaking in, I guess I would I would look at e- even if you're you're not a a full time immigration reporter, look for stories you can cover about immigrants or immigrant communities and and how they sort of fit into your beat, your area. Like I mentioned earlier, the immigration system overlaps quite a bit with healthcare and, and employment, all of these other different weedy policy areas. I think immigration is really interesting because it can impact all, all of these different pieces of our world. Well, we're at the end of the hour, and this has been a very informative and inspiring discussion with Andrew Craybaum, uh, who is immigration law reporter for Bloomberg Law. So, Andrew, thanks very much for joining us on Immigration Uncovered. Thanks for having me, James.